Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people just like you working to understand viruses and how they affect you. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we are talking with postdoctoral researchers involved in coronavirus and COVID-19 related research so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Backray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. Two monoclonal antibody treatments for SARS-CoV-2 infection have recently received emergency use authorization from the FDA, and others are currently being evaluated in clinical trials. Early results show that monoclonal antibodies may reduce hospitalizations by up to 70% if they are taken early enough in the course of infection. Their use in an outpatient setting is currently being encouraged for high-risk patients. On November 30th, 2020, we talked with Dr. Brett Case, a postdoc in the Diamond Lab at Washington University School of Medicine, who has been characterizing many monoclonal antibodies for SARS-CoV-2. Brett received his PhD in microbiology and immunology at Vanderbilt University, where he studied coronaviruses. In the Diamond Lab, his focus has been on IFIT-mediated restriction of flyaviviruses viruses, and now antibody-mediated protection for SARS-CoV-2. Hi, Brett. I'm happy to have you with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you become interested in virology research? Hey, Larissa, thanks for having me. Um, I got interested in virology research, uh, I guess, early on in grad school. Uh, you know, you're doing your rotations, you're trying to find a lab uh, that, that you're interested in joining. And I started out uh, recovering a few mutant viruses in Mark Dennison's lab at Vanderbilt. And you go from uh, assembling all these different components using a reverse genetic system uh, in, in, a, in a manner that really seems like it shouldn't and wouldn't work. But then you, you know, the, you electrophorate everything into cells. And then the next day you go and you look at the flask under the microscope and you see CPE there and it's like, wow, that's cool. And so that was, that was certainly the, the moment, I guess, where I was really interested in viruses and how they worked and things like that. On top of what I was already interested in uh, being kind of virology, immunology as it is anyway. So, yeah. What about sort of in high school or earlier on? Did you, were you exposed to science in a way that sort of led you down that path or was it just in graduate school? So certainly viruses have, have I guess, always been interesting to me, but uh, in, in college, I really got on track uh, with, with regard to science and uh, academic research and things like that. But it wasn't until graduate school that I really was exposed to viruses and uh, virus research. So yeah, I guess it was graduate school. Can you describe in a little bit more detail sort of some of the steps you took to get to sort of your graduate lab and then your postdoc lab? So how did you sort of choose those labs? For me, I started out uh, at the University of Tennessee uh, on a kind of a pre-med uh, track uh, declared a uh, major in biochemistry and cellular and molecular biology. Uh, and, and one of the things that they offer, of course, is for you to do some coursework in a, in a research lab uh, for credit. And of course, then you get your hands wet, you get exposed to specifically whatever that lab is working on. And so I got started, uh, there was a lab that had just started, uh, Brad Bender, uh, studying the ethylene uh, signaling processes uh, in plants. And this was, you know, very new to me and very interesting. And so we 
you turn ethylene gas on in a, in a seed that is uh, germinating and, you know, do time-lapse photography and see exactly how the, you know, the effects of the concentration of ethylene, the amount of ethylene, the time that, that it's on, uh, and all of those things alter uh, germination kinetics and just overall the processes that are, are occurring to keep it light. Um, and so that got me exposed to research. Uh, upon graduating from Tennessee, I knew that I still wanted to stay in research. And so I took a couple years and worked uh, in a research lab at Vanderbilt. Uh, at the time, Peggy Kendall uh, was at Vanderbilt. And a funny story is that she's actually now at WashU. Um, so I guess she's following me now instead of me following her. But um, anyway, uh, studying uh, type 1 diabetes uh, with, in, in the context of B cell contributions of B cell and T cells, uh, and, and NOD mice. And so that was a good couple years to really get deep into, uh, immunology research, mouse research, uh, and, and of course more full-time research than just, uh, working part-time in a lab. Uh, after, after a couple of years there, I knew that I really wanted to go to graduate school and so I applied to several places and ended up just staying at Vanderbilt and, and uh, stayed in the same department, Department of Microbiology and Immunology, and uh, ended up joining Mark Dennison's lab, as already mentioned, and uh, studied coronaviruses for, you know, five and a half years. And how did you choose Mark's lab? Like, what was it that sort of led you to choose that particular lab? Yeah, so like, I, you know, kind of already mentioned about the how it was really, I guess, like, oh, wow, kind of moment, you know, with regard to viruses. But also, uh, I mean, you know, there are many labs, many great labs at Vanderbilt in that department. Um, and for whatever reason, you know, the, you know, it's a combination of the science, the mentor, the people in the lab, the resources, things like that. And it just felt, it felt right. I was, I was very uh, interested in coronaviruses uh, at the time, you know, uh, MERS was just emerging and things like that. So it was certainly uh, a combination of things. Why don't you tell us, since we're on coronaviruses, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the COVID uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, research that you've been working on? I know you've done a lot of work with antibodies. So can you describe some of that work? Yeah, so how much time do we have? <laughs> the last, <laughs> last 10 months have been crazy. Uh, I've, uh, as far as antibodies, you know, we've worked with several different groups, uh, including the Crow Lab from Vanderbilt, uh, Veer Biotechnology. Uh, we have some, you can't really call them antibodies, but they're more like uh, tiny peptides that are bind specifically uh, the RBD uh, portion of Spike from the Baker Lab, the University of Washington. And uh, they're, they're several other groups that I'm not even mentioning here, but we, we've really uh, done a little bit of it all from the standpoint of we've done, you know, as you've been a part of large scale screens to identify uh, antibodies. We've put several of those that we found into mice. Uh, so then there's the aspect of developing the mouse models. We have uh, developed assays to actually verify, you know, validate all of those uh, kind of screening hits. We've uh, looked specifically at receptor binding domain antibodies. We have a few in terminal domain antibodies. We have, uh, we've done IgG antibodies primarily, but we've also looked at some IgA, some IgG, IgA chimeras. Um, we've, 
really touched a little bit of everything. And of course, very few of those we actually have structure on or really know how exactly they work. We're only beginning to understand uh, the contributions of, of effector uh, functions for these, some of the, just a small subset of antibodies. And so uh, my primarily, primarily I've been involved uh, with, you know, identification, validation with uh, uh, newt assays, and then also putting those into mice uh, to see whether they can protect as a prophylactic or if they can protect as a therapy. And if they can, of course, how far out before exposure or after exposure can we go and still see protection? And so that's, that's kind of the 40,000 foot view, I guess. Can you give us some thoughts about, I mean, some of these are now in uh, you know, clinical trials, some even getting into phase three clinical trials. What are your thoughts about when a monoclonal antibody might be the most effective or, um, whether they can be used sort of later on in disease or not. What do you think? Yeah, so I haven't seen a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the clinical trial data uh, yet, but it, just based on our research, I would say, you know, there's, there's a therapeutic window of, of a few days in mice, which may be even longer in humans, and certainly with repeated doses. And I think that we have so many antibodies that bind in such, you know, different regions that, Really, there's no reason why we couldn't have you know several different cocktails of antibodies. So then the the you know resistance uh, uh, mutations arising that that is becomes less of an issue and a worry as well as uh, there's no shortage of the numbers that you know we could try right that that may uh, may help uh, in some capacity. So I'm optimistic about. Uh, using them, of course, the vac vaccines are coming online a little bit, uh, you know, it seems like shortly, but I still think that there will be uh, a, a use for the, the antibodies, of course, that we've been developing. And certainly there's, you know, there's only so many doses of vaccine that can be generated and, and distributed and administered. And, you know, even then after, after you've received the vaccine, it's going to take a little time to, to uh, have a response to it. So I think antibodies are certainly have the capacity to uh, help and assist uh, where vaccines are not present yet, uh, as well as maybe treat after the fact. Do you think from the mouse work that there's a chance that different classes or different mechanisms of antibodies will allow some of them to be used sort of later in, the sta in later stages of infection? Or is it pretty much all just like, mm, dealing with uh, virus load in a way? So in my experience, I think it has more to do with virus load initially and neutralization of virus, which of course then has downstream effects on the amount of actual virus, you know, the MOI, the effective MOI that you actually receive, as well as then the uh, subsequent immune response to that infection. And so um, that's that's my experience. I'm, I'm sure that there are antibodies that uh, are out there that could have bigger effects than that uh, uh, and maybe further out. But at least in, in, in my work, I think that, I think we're talking about, you know, neutralizing antibodies uh, very early on affecting viral load. And then, like I said, subsequent uh, immune response. I guess just a follow-up question. So since you had worked on Mar MERS and some of these other coronaviruses, did you ever expect to be working on coronavirus in that context of a pandemic? Absolutely not. So it's, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, as, as you're writing grants or, or, or 
writing papers, you know, that, that the fact that SARS emerged and no one saw that coming and then MERS emerged and no one saw that coming and there's continued, you know, exposure between bats, which of course are just humongous reservoirs for coronaviruses and other viruses too. Um, we always say that, you know, another virus could emerge and it, and it you know, is, is likely and, and it, it's true, but I don't think we ever could have imagined it would be in this kind of context and that, that there would be a, a, not just an epidemic or an outbreak, but a pandemic and not just a pandemic uh, of, of, you know, thousands of cases, but rather millions and millions of cases. And so uh, I, I certainly had uh, aspirations of working on coronaviruses again one day, uh, you know, when I started a postdoc and maybe, maybe not quite as soon as, as I have. So yeah, it's been, it's been crazy. Uh, you talked a little bit about the, that sort of exciting moment where you discovered sort of recombinant viruses in a way. Um, what is the most difficult thing you've had to overcome as a scientist and how did you overcome it? Yeah. So uh, I, this is maybe a little bit different than, than a typical response to this question might be, but uh, my primary, I guess, difficulties in science have been just the physical and mental aspects of it. And what I mean by that is, as being a virologist, we spend, you know, you, there are very few things that you can do not in a biosafety cabinet and being physically stretched out into a biosafety cabinet for hours upon hours, days upon days, weeks upon weeks, years after years, it takes a toll on you. And, and certainly then also uh, just, I think the way that I am programmed is to be very stressed and very worried about things. And science leaves plenty of opportunity for all of those things, just, just purely on the basis of trying to get things done in a timely manner, manner manage you know, what you have going and keep everything straight, let alone just, you know, will this experiment work? Does this make sense? What does it mean? You know, I don't know. So that has been, those have been my two main uh, things to overcome in science, you know, and that, that may be true for any career that I could have picked, but certainly that, that's been uh, my experience. And as far as overcoming them, I, I certainly can't say that I have overcome them, but I think I've learned to manage them and manage them meaning you know, physical therapy exercises for the physical aspects and uh, just mental health, stress relief things uh, for the mental aspects. So kind of different, but certainly th that's been my biggest challenge. So for the mental health stuff, I mean, that can't, that must have gotten even worse in the past 10 months. So how, how have you been coping with the stress? Because it's not just the stress of the job, it's like the stress of the world in a way. So how, how have you been dealing with that? To a certain degree, it, it's gotten better and it's gotten worse, and I'll explain both. So it's gotten worse, and it, you're right. It, there's there's people pulling at you from all different directions, needing and wanting and and not sure about things, and that goes from you know career wise and science wise to family, you know, asking questions and 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 spouse, you know, asking questions, things like that. So certainly there has been uh, you know more stress from uh, just the overall amount of work and constantly my brain being on in the last 10 months uh, than I've ever experienced. But at the same time, I feel, you know, it, we always, I guess in science, there's, there are many questions that we can ask. And a lot of times they are all very important, but some have more immediate impact and are more translatable 
and arguably more important than others. And I think in the last 10 months, I haven't had to worry about any of that, you know, whether this experiment is really worth doing or not there, you know, it's very, yes, go. And so, uh, and, and of course we've, we've had a lot of productivity with regard uh, to SARS-CoV-2. And so for me seeing, you know, things start out, you know, the first injection of a mouse with something or, you know, the first isolation of an antibody to actually injecting a mouse with it and seeing protection from start to finish has been very gratifying to, to actually see, okay, that we're making progress. We're doing things uh, that are potentially beneficial to a large number of people, not just uh, us in a science bubble. So what's next? What do you think, uh, how, how do you see your, your path sort of moving forward? Yeah, so I think uh, my path moving forward uh, is progressing. Uh, certainly, there have been we've had a, I've had a ton of publications, you know, from SARS-CoV-2 work. Uh, still have some of my original work that I need to finish up if I ever get an opportunity to uh, uh, to, to get out. Um, but overall, I think that my goals are to to try to get this to continue to work on SARS-CoV-2 and to get the pandemic under control uh, from that standpoint. And then after that, I really tried to take the opportunity to develop my own, you know, research uh, projects and plans and what I really am interested in. So where I can, of course, establish my own lab someday uh, in, 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 you know, in a timely manner and, and start off on a good foot uh, with, with, you know, some SARS-CoV-2 work, but also, you know, some non-SARS-CoV-2 work. So um, that's, that's where I see, you know, myself in the next year to two years of, of really, you know, eventually transitioning to more than just SARS-CoV-2, but at the same time, um, trying to be a little bit more independent-minded. So I guess moving to the personal thing, um, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected you as an individual? So what's changed for you over the past 10 months? The biggest change, and this is uh, not to be in any way boastful, but I, I have no free time. I have I, I work more than I've ever worked, you know, in my life. And, and, you know, maybe in the past I would work really hard and work on weekends and things like that. But now that this has been even beyond, you know, anything in the past. So uh, very few, very few <laughs> days of, of actual uh, time away and certainly, you know, come home at night and it's not just, okay, I went to work and I worked. It's their emails, papers, reviews. Uh, there's any number of things that, you know, keep me busy into the night. And so, and that's all day, every day. So that's the biggest thing I think that I've had very, very, a uh, little downtime for myself and for others. And to a certain degree, I feel like it's warranted. And to a certain degree, maybe I should take it easy a little bit, but it, right now is not the time. So do you, do you take some downtime though, to kind of cope? Is there something that you do to sort of manage or, or do you just work constantly and sleep? <laughs> to be completely honest, uh, very, very little downtime. I, I'm, I'm constantly doing something and my, at first I thought, okay, I'm okay. I can push through, keep my head down, keep going. And certainly to this point now, the pandemic continues to go on. I, you know, I keep thinking, okay, another month or two and things will be better. Another month or two and things will be better. And here we are, you know, who knows when. So <clears throat> at a certain point, I definitely will have to take a, take a small break. But uh, right now I, I think that 
mentally I see that there's only one way and that is just keep pushing. So that's, that's what I'm doing. And so far I haven't cracked yet. So we'll, we'll keep it up as long as I can. So I guess uh, maybe this is less of, less of a question for you because you're just working, but as a virologist, how do you make decisions about how to keep yourself and your family safe um, during the pandemic? WashU has done a good job with providing information, you know, with regard to safe work practices that could then also be extended to your home and yourself. And of course, uh, Mike has, has pushed for safety for, for us as a lab. And so it's very easy to take a lot of those practices and just convey them uh, to others in your family and the way that you work and things like that, uh, out, you know, things that you do outside of work. And of course, to, and to a large extent, the pandemic has caused a lot of closures, and a lot of altered hours and things like that. So to a certain degree, there's limited capacity to actually do anything anyway, but certainly if you're working a lot. And so um, I think the main thing that I've tried to do is just actually share information with my wife as well as my family. Uh, you know, not just, Hey, do this because someone said so, but here's why and here's how. And, and, you know, there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of exaggeration and a lot of just overall unknowns with, with, with regard to information uh, that's been going on, you know, across the entire pandemic. And so I think, being a coronavirologist, actually working with the virus on a daily basis, they, I'd like to think they take my word for it a little bit more than maybe, maybe the TV. And so, you know, I, I just try to let them understand, show them and teach them and help them understand what and why versus just here's what someone said do. And so um, I've, I've and of course, you know, as, as this is continuing on, there's also been more and more data. And so then I can take something that someone either wants me to look at or that I find and I can actually assess it for, uh, is this actually a good study? Is this, was this thorough? Was this, you know, does this make any sense in, you know, from the field? And I can then, you know, render an opinion on it uh, or recommendation or, or not, you know, for them. And uh, I mean, we are hearing reports, obviously, that vaccines will be coming soon. It's obviously not clear when people, you know, when the vaccines will be available and so on. What are your thoughts about the vaccines themselves? My thoughts on the vaccines, I guess, would be uh, hopefully production can keep up with uh, demand. And what I mean by that, obviously, there's everyone needs one or wants one right now. But I think if there is a, a planned uh, rollout of the vaccines, it needs to also not just be here's wishful thinking of how fast we would, it needs to actually be uh, practical. And so that if you say in February, we're going to have, you know, hundred thousand people have been vaccinated. You need to deliver on that because if things start, you know, if the pandemic is still going and you still, and you have uh, vaccines not making it where there's, when they're supposed to be, then you're going to have people getting further stressed about it and, and worried about it. Um, I also think that, uh, the safety, you know, aspect of it for, with regard to, to the vaccines, obviously they've been through clinical trials. Uh, hopefully there are no surprises or there aren't, there isn't uh, anything that completely makes the world lose faith in scientists, you know, because even, even as thorough as you can be and as good as you can try to be to prevent uh, adverse uh, events, Sometimes it happens, and I don't think that's the case for any of these vaccines. I'm just saying that God help us if it does, because, you know, I, I'm just going to make things even worse.
So uh, we're wrapping up. Um, any last messages for our listeners? Any thoughts about where you see the COVID-19 pandemic going? Yeah, I guess any final thoughts would be just hang in there and stay with it. Uh, we've, we've done it for this long. We know what to do and how to do it. So just keep on keeping on, I guess. Um, as far as the overall uh, pandemic, I think um, we're getting to that point where it's actually, you know, all of this work that's been going around the world by numerous people is actually, you know, going to have to start showing up, not just in scientific publications or on the news. We're actually going to see a difference made. And so uh, I'm excited for it. But at the same time, uh, I think, you know, we have to be patient still and, and stay, you know, with Thanksgiving just passed and Christmas coming up, I'm afraid that the worst still may be to come uh, in some aspects. So uh, I think we're definitely getting to, to uh, a climax here. So let's, you know, let's see if we can have a good uh, ending. All right. Well, thanks very much. Brett and many others around the world have been working hard over the past 10 months to identify and characterize monoclonal antibodies against SARS-CoV-2, several of which are currently available to prevent or treat COVID in high-risk patient populations. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on most podcasts or at lmtvpodbean.com. If you are a virologist interested in sharing who you are and what you do, please contact us at letusmeetthevirologists at gmail.com.